the way we've shifted from living in spaces where we have open fresh air, grass, trees, the lack of time that we spend in nature, the lack of nature that's, you know, available to a lot of us. I think it has an impact on our well-being. I don't think we're that aware of it, but to live in concrete and have buildings and <laughs> the air we're breathing, when I think about emotional obesity and when I think about connecting back to ourselves, our, our lack of connection to nature is uh, not natural to us as a species. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. I've been on Laura Coe's podcasts. We've become friends, and now I'm pleased to have her on my podcast. We talk about several concepts, but one of the main ones is a concept she came up with that I love. She calls it emotional obesity. It's a parallel between physical health and emotional health. I find it a rich analogy on many levels. So the main idea is that characteristics of addiction to food that creates obesity and the parallels with thoughts that cause what she calls emotional obesity, being addicted to thoughts that don't really make your life better. So I'll let her describe her concept in more detail, but enables you to make yourself more emotionally healthy in similar ways to how you make yourself physically healthy. So if you think of thoughts that you kick yourself with, If your friend said those things to you, you'd probably leave that friend, yet we keep doing it to ourselves. Dwelling in unproductive thoughts and blame, I don't find it improves my life. I mean, you have to live your life, but it generally doesn't improve life. Laura expands on this concept, but I just can't get over how helpful it is. So we expand it to environmental obesity, which she hadn't thought of either, where we look at addictive environmental behaviors, looking the other way when you're doing things that pollute, things like that. It reminds me of a concept in physics that when people try to solve very many difficult problems, If you can show that one problem is identical to another, even if you haven't been able to solve either of them, if you reduce it to one problem, you reduce the number of problems in the world. That's what this sounds like to me. She's found how one problem is just like another problem. So if you can solve the other problem, you can solve this problem. All right, well, I'll let Laura talk about it more. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Laura Coe. Laura, how are you doing? Fantastic. How are you doing? I'm very good. And in part because I love hearing your voice. Okay. I've said this to others. I'm going to say it to you. I may have said it to you before, but I'll say it again. Your podcast was one of the podcasts that got me going at the beginning. And I listened to you and you became a role model. And this is how I put it. It's NPR's loss that they aren't beating down your door, beating down your door, trying to get you to do it with them. Because I, I, I really, I learned a lot from you and okay, sorry, I'm not trying to make you blush. That's so sweet. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. And it was really so wonderful to have you on the show. And um, anybody listening who wants to check out the episode, he, he were such a fun interview. And I, I won't feel bad to anyone who pauses this right now and goes to listen to a whole bunch of her episodes and comes back here. <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> I really won't feel bad if that happens. And now we actually recorded a while ago 
you were one of the first people that I recorded for this podcast. And then life happened and things came up that we decided, let's do it sometime later. And that time later is now. And I appreciate you coming back and that it didn't work out before, but uh, I look forward to giving it a shot now. Yes, absolutely. Excited want, to hear what's in store for the day. I want to cover some of the things that we covered before, especially your concept of emotional obesity, because that's something is, I've come back to a lot. And now we were just talking for a few minutes before hitting the record button. And there are some things that are coming up for you on the next, on the horizon. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to start with the, the concept that you've written about and that if you go to your pages, it's, it's very prominent there. And then if there's time or you're inclined, then we can talk about some of the new stuff too. Fantastic. So for me, the concept of emotional obesity has always been interesting to me, even more so as I keep seeing parallels between how we treat our planet and how we treat our bodies. Like if we, like there's garbage all over the planet because we don't care about, we, we just get stuff that isn't really valuable to us and it ends up all over the place. And as someone who picks up a piece of garbage every day, I see it everywhere. And it feels very similar from a leadership, from an emotional perspective of if you stuff stuff into your body, it's going to happen that way. Something, something similar is going to happen. And also you also, if you, if you treat things emotionally, if you, I'll let you describe, maybe I should let you describe more like the concept of, of emotional junk food and things like that. Can you give us a primer on what emotional obesity is and, and how that concept helps us? Absolutely. And, you know, just quickly to your point, right? Like the way we might treat our bodies or the, the planet. And in my experience in this book, right? Our, our minds um, is because we're, we're mainly unconscious to a lot of the things that we do on a day-to-day basis, not because it's a, a fault or a mistake, but because, um, you know, while there's millions of pieces of information coming into our conscious, our unconscious mind, we're only conscious of, of a handful of those things. And so what we choose to bring to the forefront of our minds and have consciousness around is, you know, dependent on our education, upbringing, experiences, values, and, and often isn't even based on our beliefs. It's just an unconscious pattern. But um, to to emotional obesity, yeah, the the idea was pretty simple, right? We we wouldn't imagine waking up uh, without some effort towards our body. <laughs> There's nobody listening who doesn't at least brush their teeth, comb their hair, take a shower. Right, so a few of these things on a day to day basis. We we feed ourselves. We um, make sure our outfit looks reasonable. We wash our clothes. We use soap. All all of these different things. And you know, I'm just mentioning a couple. But what do we do every day to manage our thoughts? What do we do every day to manage what's going on on the inside? And so, while it's not as obvious as looking in the mirror because it's happening internally, it has an impact. And it matters. And we speak that way. We say, I feel weighed down, right? Like life feels heavy sometimes. And we feel tension and stress and pressure in our bodies, in our neck, our throat, our shoulders. But our answer to all of that is to man up, (laughs) like just deal with it. And also we kind of think we're going crazy that it's really just particular to us, right? The thoughts in my head, what's going on in my mind, the stress in my body, it's really particular to my life. And, and if I told people what's truly going on in my mind, nobody would be my friend. Everybody would think I'm nuts, and, <laughs> right? I, like uh, people would run for the hills. But in reality, everybody is running these extraordinary negative dialogues, right? And they're unconscious to them and they feel as if it really has no effect. 
And so the book was about this idea that, that it absolutely does. Um, there's no shame in it. It is just how we're designed. We're designed to just run scripts in our head all day long and we really don't listen and that it, it does matter. And we want to shed this weight. We want to shed these quote junk food thoughts is how I talked about them, right? We want to take care of our minds the way we take care of our, our bodies and think about what we can consume mentally that's nutritional, meaning how can we focus our energies towards things that are uh, empowered and productive, help us get where we want and are aligned with our beliefs instead of allowing our minds to just wander around, you know, and you sort of find yourself a couple hours later in some really bad mood because your your head is just spinning through all these negative narratives of, right, low self-worth or I'm not good enough. Um, I'm comparing myself to my friends. Uh, people don't like me. I'm not lovable, right? Like all of these really defeating scripts. So that's the book and that was the concept. And the podcast came out of that because I realized once we sort of get ourselves into quote emotional shape, it's a navigation from there, right? Once we remove all these layers of thought that keep us from our authentic truth, our our, our deeper self, a connection to ourself, allowing ourselves to connect and feel and enjoy and experience, you know, where we really are in a moment, not just these negative scripts. That in itself is a whole nother process. You have to uh, listen to that and navigate from that space. So that's where the podcast came. And um, yeah, that's that, that's the short, the short of the long. You know, what you're talking about is related a lot to say like mindfulness and I'm a big fan of meditation and exercise and sleep and those things are all very effective. And the terms that you use create a visual component and a direction that make it easy to act on. And it, it gives direction because I don't like to have an unhealthy amount of body fat on me. And if I do, then I think about how I can change my, uh, my diet, my exercise, maybe in my sleep. And now if I think of myself as having a lot of emotional obesity, then I, it directs me, oh, think about what I'm putting in my mind. Think about what I'm putting into my emotional system and what can I do about it? And what, and then how am I exercising it in the sense of um, some of it is inevitable. Yeah. As you say, I think you can't help but sometimes think these thoughts, or maybe often think these thoughts. And that doesn't mean that they have to stick forever. Maybe they'll stick for a little while. And it's really, it's a simple concept. It's visceral, I guess, is, is, is uh, the terminology you have. Is that the effect it has on everyone? I mean, you, you coach a lot of people. I presume this comes up with a lot of people. Yeah, it's uh, this idea that these thoughts, right, that, that you walk by something that smells fatty and, you know, <laughs> donuts and, right, it smells good. We're drawn towards fats and salts and all sorts of things that aren't good for us, drugs and, right, alcohol. There's all sorts of things that in abundance is not healthy for us. So we've been educated to understand that and that we need to think about ways to manage our draw towards those things. Um, there was a time when there was no salt available. So we, you know, we gravitate towards salt, but now there's an abundance of it. There weren't fats readily available. So, you know, now we have to manage ourselves because it's everywhere. We live in such a state of abundance. And in our, in our minds, right, we there was fear. You didn't know if you were going to survive the night or, you know, predators or animals or, but we're living in an incredible state of abundance. So this narrative that's running through our heads 
just because it's there doesn't mean it's real, doesn't mean you have to listen, doesn't mean it's aligned with your beliefs. It's an opportunity to get curious and interested in what's going on and make a choice. So I work with people all the time who, right, they come to me and this perspective of, of thinking about their mind as not right or wrong, good or bad, or just because I'm thinking these things, it has to have an impact and it has to be taken seriously. So I work with them just like we think about nutrition. Just because I really want to dive into a chocolate bar doesn't mean I have to do that and do I want the outcome of it and making choices that are aligned with what we want in our life. So just because I'm thinking I'm not really good enough to write everything that's been said has been said. I'm not smart enough to start a business, right? So-and-so has all the skills and I don't really, I should go back to school and get those degrees. Just because you're thinking all those things doesn't mean they're true. So to turn the light onto those thoughts, take the time to go through them, question their validity. Um, Sometimes they're true, sometimes they're not. But here's one test that everybody can do quickly to figure that out. If you took you know, 30, 40 thoughts that go through your head in an hour and wrote them down. And you asked yourself, what if my best friend said that to me? How would I feel about that? (laughs) Mostly we would not be friends with that person. Mostly we would literally get into a huge argument with that person and probably walk away and just really never be more offended. For example, you have a Uh, bad experience, right? You submit an article and it doesn't get accepted. You uh, hit a bump in your business. A faculty member, you don't get tenure. Something happens, right? Your relationship, it's hitting a a tough spot. Your friend, if you go to them, what would they say? Oh, I'm sorry, you know, try again. And you worked really hard. They would say things that are reasonable to you. In your head, you'll say, you know, yep, it's because I'm not good enough. It's because I'm not lovable. I knew that was going to happen. I shouldn't have even tried this. You know, I'm, I'm just listing a handful, but my clients get really honest with me and start sharing the realities of what they say and the way we speak to ourselves, you know, it's, it's really, really, really unproductive and unkind. So I work with people to, to get clear with that, to question it, and then to think about, right, is this supportive of, of what you want in your life and how much does this derail you? I love the simplicity of it. And For me, it's come through a lot of meditation and exercises of like writing down this inner monologue, for example. And certainly when I teach, I have other people write down their inner monologues in my leadership courses. And then the more that I see others, one of the main things I do in that class is for that exercise is I have people write down their inner monologue a couple times a day for a week. And then they inevitably share it with each other. And then they start hearing, you thought that too? Uh And it's a very eye-opening experience. Yeah. And as a result, for me, certainly the law, I mean, now it's been a couple of decades I've been doing that, that one, I, I, when I hear it in my voice, it still affects me. I can't completely stop it. The voices, as you described, that are like are bringing me down, but the grip is not so strong. But also I see that because I see it in everyone, I realize it's not me that feels this way. It's, I mean, not me, Joshua Spodek, the individual, it's, Human beings are this way, and it it lets the grip di- dissipate so much, and it facilitates me creating, injecting, putting in the thoughts that I want, and they tend to stick a little more effectively. Do you have that as well? Yeah, and that's why I fashion it to exercise because it's a, it takes effort, right? It's it's a little bit of work, but the outcome is so worth it. But a hundred percent, I mean. 
the clients who share with me the vulnerability that I experience with, you know, the interviews in the podcast, conversations with people like yourself who are willing to admit to it and acknowledge it. And it's human. This is what makes us human. All of us do this. And the only question isn't whether or not you do it. It's just how much, like you said, how much of a grip, how much does it hook you? How much does it take you down? Because if you're not paying attention and you let those narratives go for the day, the week, the month, the year, two years, 10 years, right? (laughs) People Uh aren't paying attention. I don't know why I'm so depressed. I don't know why I feel so down. I don't know. Well, again, imagine somebody is hanging out with you, speaking to you like that every day. It would have an impact on you. So of course it is. (laughs) So it's this, you know, it's not you, there's nothing wrong with it, but the awareness of it and then challenging those views, learning things, learning techniques to allow those thoughts to, um, dissipate, go away. It's critical. And so the change in my life is is huge. I mean, things that would have originally gotten me really angry and it would have stuck for, for weeks is, you know, down to a few minutes, right? Things that cause these emotions that, that used to, to just wear me out. Um, I'm able to get to the other side of a lot faster and it allows you to be more productive, more able to live in your, your day-to-day life, be more present because you're not distracted by these negative narratives, then the thoughts, right, Josh, they, they don't just wear you down. The thoughts actually create a chemical reaction where you have feelings that come with it. <laughs> it's not just the thought alone. I mean, you feel sad. You can put thoughts in your head that actually can you know, allow you to feel depressed and sad. If any of us focused on something that's really, really, really difficult, we can feel sad even though it's not happening right now. You can feel anxious. So it impacts your your actual chemistry, your cortisol levels, your fight or flight systems, right? And so you're living in this very, very unnerved space for years of your life and it can have health uh, implications as well. So yeah, I, I see it with, with my clients. I definitely think the it's not me factor, we're all in this together, it's human. And then doing the work to, to make those shifts is, is, you know, critical to living a life that, that feels better. Yeah. I would say if you look at the thoughts and some people might say, yeah, but they're not really having an effect. And you say it does, it has an effect, a chemical effect. These are from another perspective of when people feel sad, if people feel an emotion that they don't want or they don't understand, this is where it comes from. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not just the world. It's the world as filtered through our perceptions and these Thoughts are a major piece of the lenses through which we view the world. Like, where else would it come from? I mean, it from that perspective, it's it seems like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and look, then I know somebody out there is going, well, but sometimes life is just hard. It's sad. Somebody dies. A hundred percent. I'm not saying that the feelings are right or wrong, and that there's we don't want to have them, or that we want to always filter things through a positive lens, right? And then that's where I really dislike some of the self-help because it's like positive thinking all the time. <laughs> and that is not what the spiritual texts or philosophical texts that you know I love really talk about. It's that the acceptance of the pain of the moment, right? Um, Eckhart Tolle puts it really well. Uh, he says, you know, when your car goes into a ditch and it's uh, right in a, in a mud ditch and you can't, you can't get it out, your, your car stuck. You can have one problem or two problems. One problem is your car is stuck in the mud. 
The second problem is that you don't accept that your car is stuck in the mud and you start talking about it through this lens, right? And this is the, the perspective part that you do have control over. Oh my God, I can't believe this happened to me again. Oh, my car's stuck in the mud and right. I'll, I'll be late for this meeting and I'll, these friends will be mad at me or I'm going to lose my job, or, right? The, the endless narration that we place on the reality that my car is stuck in the mud creates the suffering. So there's nothing like fun about having your car stuck in the mud and it's perfectly fine to say, I'm like super unhappy about this. Like this is frustrating. But the amount that we dialogue about it and the lack of acceptance that, yep, this is not what I want and I'm not happy my car is stuck, but now I'm going to call a tow truck. <laughs> now I'm going to like get out of my car and walk to the gas station or get on, you know, a phone call and ask for a ride. Like that's my next step. And I'm not happy about it. I don't want to be doing this today, but that's all that I'm going to experience. I'm going to allow the experience to be unpleasant, right? But I'm not going to dialogue about it endlessly through some filter and everybody has a filter. I'm a victim, poor me. Uh, this is what I deserve. I'm not worthy, right? Like some way in which we, or the angry, like I can't believe this is happening, right? <laughs> but everybody has like some filter that they take these situations, which are unpleasant and um, exacerbate the, the experience. So I think that positive self-talk isn't the answer per se. I, I do think it's important to accept negative experiences and and same with positive things right they're they're beautiful it's wonderful a dog walked by walked wagged his tail i'm i'm happy they're all fleeting they're all moving they're all going to shift over time and suffering happens when we don't allow that natural flow to happen because we get our minds too engaged with you know desiring happiness at every second of every day and pushing pain away at all times and then adding all this dialogue, this inner you know, narrative to it. It reminds me of the scene in, did you see the movie Apollo 13? It's a true story. I don't know how accurate it is, but the, the astronauts are going to go to the moon and there's a, um, a mishap on board, something, an, an accident. There's a minor explosion and they, accident after accident after accident happens. There's not a whole lot of leeway in space and they're trying to get these astronauts home. And there's a scene in the control room, I guess, in Houston. And the head of the mission is speaking to, I think, someone who's like the, the press or someone who's going to talk to the media. And they're like, this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened. And the guy's like, I know this is possibly the worst. This is the worst disaster that NASA has ever faced. And as they're saying that, there's a guy who's, I think, lower in the hierarchy than someone else there. But he, he turns and he says, with all due respect, sir, I believe this will be our finest hour. And you could say, oh, it's just words. If I was just astronauts up in space, I'd much rather have the guy saying it's going to be our finest hour in charge. And he was the guy who like got them, played a major role in getting them back home. And it's not just words. Like the words make a difference in how we feel, how we behave, what, what expectations we have. And yeah, a lot of people can, they're like, oh, I don't want to be so positive all the time. To me, it's more like productive or deliberate in my, in the thoughts. Like, do I want my thoughts to be whatever happens or do I want to have some measure of choice in it based on the outcome that I want or based on whatever? That's, you know, the stoicism, right? Every, again, everybody talks about it. The situation is the situation, the car's in the mud or to your point, the movie scene that you've played out. And there's thousands of these. How we decide to interpret it and talk about it is our choice. And that's the part we have control over. 
and understanding that in every moment, there's thousands of ways we can perceive and talk about any situation. So I would argue like it's not just being positive. It feels better and why not? Um, so yes, your car is stuck in the mud and this is terrible. And uh, right, sure, you can talk like that. Or you know what? Well, I have an opportunity to just like chill out for a few hours. <laughs> I'm going to catch up on my emails. That's also true. So, right. And I could give 20 different ways to interpret or to dialogue about that scenario. I was going to go for a picnic and it's raining outside. Oh, this always happens to me. Oh, my day is ruined. Right. Or um, it's raining out. It's beautiful. You know, the flowers are going to get some water and I'm going to go inside and read for a little while. I mean, the rain is going to come down and there's water falling out of the sky. That is the fact. But the rest of it and how we discuss it and how much of it is perceived as right somehow affecting our ego, that's our decision. And the more you go down that rabbit hole, the, the harder life becomes. So you know you don't have to do anything about it. And for anybody out there, to your point, who is saying, I don't want to be that positive and blah, blah. Okay, you know, <laughs> I don't have much to say to that other than, um, you know, it's a hard way to live life uh, to, to view things through a lens that um, is, is defeating. So, you know, do you want to feel empowered on a regular basis or, or disempowered? And the more that you do it, if you do it with the car stuck in the mud, I, I think it also, the, this analogy of, of physical exercise or practice, you get better at it. And if, if you can lift a little weight now, and you keep doing it, eventually you can lift a heavier weight. And so you, you handle little situations. And the next thing you know, I don't know, some big thing like you lose your job or you're, I don't know, some really something you never thought you could handle before becomes handle, becomes is no longer hard because you did something that was, that got you up to, that's the next thing for you to handle. A hundred percent. I love this analogy. A hundred percent. And I mean, I've done this in my own life. Um, I've worked with so many people who have helped with it and a uh, hundred percent, you know, people come to me, they, you know, they can barely handle that they're in the parking lot and somebody took their parking space without it destroying an entire day. And, you know, next thing I know they're changing their job, they're moving, they're changing relationships. They're, they're doing all of these things and they're able to handle so much more in life. We are filled with habits, right? Unconscious thoughts. We can't be conscious of everything we're doing. So the more we practice it, the more those patterns get laid in our minds, those neural paths. And so we don't even have to work at it at some point. It actually becomes um, like a muscle, right? You can just, your muscle is big enough now that five pounds, you don't feel that. So there's really no effort in in that experience. So it's it's a hundred percent true in, in that analogy. And the science is there, Josh, like they've studied this now, you know, there's the Stanford Center for Compassion. There's all these places that are, you know, they, they look at the brain. And when you practice fear, uh, that part of your brain lights up really big and quickly. When you practice compassion more and more and more, that part of your brain lights up. So there's these great books, uh, for agreements, uh, Riaz, I don't know if you've checked him out, but he has something called mastery of love and mastery of self. His son, I believe wrote those what are you mastering on a day-to-day basis is what I find fascinating. Are you mastering fear? Are you mastering feeling that you're not deserving? Are you mastering that you don't feel lovable? Or are you mastering love? Are you mastering self? Are you mastering compassion, right? Because your mind is habituating patterns over and over and over. So which one are you working at? The analogy is so simple and so, to me, directive and motivating. 
that I did something I very rarely do as a result of what you're saying that I, I went online. I, well, I'm online. I went into the browser just now and I searched environmental obesity to see if anyone had taken the analogy in that direction and nothing came up. And then just to make sure it wasn't like the search engine, I then looked up emotional obesity and you came up as the number one answer and at emotionalobesity.com. And so that tells me that it would come up if someone were doing this, but now I might borrow from you and use this analogy because, you know, lately I've been thinking a lot about environmental, the cause of, when people say what's causing global warming, a lot of people say, well, it's greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane, things like that. But those are a proximal cause. The cause of them is our behavior. What's causing our behavior is our beliefs. And so we have, I think, environmental junk food, things like if I act, but no one else does, then what I do doesn't matter. Or these little things are so, so small that they're not worth doing. And these big things are so big, then it's too hard for me to even try. Or there should be a law, but like, there's this weird mix of like, there should be a law, but if I'm not going to do it anyway. I, anyway, these all kinds of beliefs that I, that I see people coming up with that I feel myself. You know, it's not like, it's like some foreign concept. When, I'm, when I have the prospect of, of getting packaged food, and I'm really hungry. A lot of times I'll think like, oh, no one will notice. And that's, you know, well, where do I think that the plastic in the ocean comes from, except for things, exactly that behavior? And well, I could go on with the analogy, but and looking back over what you're saying about emotional obesity, environmental obesity, it, it fits pretty well. And I wonder if this is a concept to start developing. Sure. I mean, I am happy to share the <laughs> concept. And um, yeah, I, I, I think there's um, a lot of different areas of the world where, where this fits, right? Like where we get the conscious awareness of things and we take small steps um, over time, we build up to being able to take bigger and bigger steps and, you know, can handle more and more. And so I would think that it would fit in a, in a few areas of the world. Do you ever get pushback? One of the reasons I hold back on making the analogy is that in fitness and in obesity, I haven't delved into it and I haven't, I don't want to be the brunt of it is I feel like there's pushback from people who are saying there should be body acceptance at every size, healthy at every size and body acceptance and things like that. And that there, it feels like there's a lot of people who are saying, this is the way I am. And there's nothing I can do about it which feels to me like palliative. Maybe it's the case, I'm not sure. But do you ever get pushback on that? I really don't. And I actually thought I would, but I'm really not interested in speaking. It's a metaphor. And I am really not here to judge or criticize people who um, may have you know, weight issues or who have extra weight and actually feel perfectly happy with that. I don't really have a strong perspective. It's not really a space that I think too hard and long about. Um, for me, what was meaningful is if you do decide to get physically in shape, and I don't even mean just like exercise, right? Like combing our hair, brushing our teeth, all the different things we do physically. There are routines, people are aware of it. It's part of our culture. In our world today, there's really not much organization or thought put around how we might do that with our emotional life. So that's really what I'm interested in talking about um, is just that if you're interested in mastering your mind, getting more control over your thoughts, and you feel as if that might make an impact on your life, I certainly have felt that way, that there are tools and there are ways to do it. And it's something to think about. And I just wanted to get that awareness out there. It's not for everybody. A lot of people, right, would quickly say, what I do get pushback on is, I'm fine. This isn't impacting my life. And that's for them to judge. Um, that is not 
something I feel organized around telling people. I mean, again, the work is all around authenticity, right? So I do believe everybody's on their own path and their own journey, and it's important for them to come to things when and if they feel it's meaningful to them. Okay. So that gives me a bit of strategy of if I pursue this of how to go. So maybe the listeners are like, oh, I wonder if Josh is going to do this. (laughs) I really appreciate you sharing this. And partly, I don't want to have you say things that you've said many, many times before. But on the other hand, if, man, you're an expert on it, (laughs) you have a lot of experience and you're obviously speaking from having been through, like worked out all the details. And so I hope that comes off for the the listeners that, well, and and then there's more because they can go to emotionalobesity.com and they can take the test and things like that. I alluded before to what we spoke about before, and I wonder if you could share some of what's coming up because you're not static. You're not just sitting on your laurels. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we were talking a few minutes before we started recording that, you know, in this quest for me to remain authentic, a lot of my clients say it this way. I don't know if you saw the movie, The Matrix, anybody out there who has seen the movie. um, If you haven't, um, it's all about this idea that, you know, that the world is an illusion and that uh, there's a moment where they get to take this pill. I think it's red or green. Um, and blue. depending on the pill, yeah. blue, uh, depending on which one they choose, then they get to see that, that in fact, it is an illusion that people are hooked up to these machines and um, they're in these pods and they think they're living their life, but in fact, they're not. And that everything we're experiencing is just this this illusion. And so what I work with with people is you know, the mind, the way our brains work, that it is um, the only tool and the only resource that gives us information on how to live our life is the matrix piece. That's just not true. And that there's this inner wisdom, this the gut instinct, that sense of self, that deeper core connection that gives us a lot of information into who we are and what we want and what makes sense to us. So while the pro and con list, right, is popular and gathering knowledge to make decisions is also popular. The final decision has to come from within you. So I help people get connected to that and experience that and help live their life from, right, this this place, this compass, this deeper, deeper self. And so having done that work on myself, you know, I, I was thinking about what my next book would be, uh, where to take the podcast. And it came to this realization that while I could keep pushing in certain directions because it might feel good to my ego to just be productive and get things done and you know uh, continue to to produce and and get the outcome of all of that. I just felt I needed space. I needed time to live my life, uh, have experiences, and think about where to move the the work. And so after about a year and a half of fits and starts and extraordinarily low amounts of output. Uh, <laughs> I've come around to this question of self-love. It's something I've I've kept away from because I feel as if it's like saccharine and sort of syrupy and it's, I don't know, it's always rubbed me the wrong way. But the more I've read about it this year, the more I'm really taking it seriously. So it's not just managing these inner not di- dialogues that you and I have discussed, Right what would it be like if you really did speak to yourself on a daily basis and treated yourself truly like you would treat your best friend, right? Why don't we do that? What is it about our experience that we don't treat ourselves with compassion and love the way we would with our loved ones? I have a son, anybody out there that has kids or you know, a, a, a loved one in their family, you know, their, their parents, what if you truly had the love you have for that other person for yourself, what would that feel like? 
if you could experience that depth of love within your own body. I don't know. So I'm, I'm very curious about that because while the work is around authenticity and shedding the emotional weight and getting to this core self and, and living a life that's ultimately feels reflective of your, your truth, can you really be fulfilled and feel passion in your life if you don't fully love yourself and can't experience that? And you, you know, these negative narratives are the mainstay of your, your day-to-day basis. Um, and even if you control them to some degree, do you replace them with truly like caring thoughts about yourself and what would that experience be like? So that's kind of the space I'm moving towards and what exactly that means and um, what direction I haven't quite figured out. Well, I appreciate you sharing where you are so far, especially because it's often hard for people to even articulate that, but also share it, even if they can't articulate it, because it's, I think it makes you vulnerable. And I think a lot of people would like to think the thoughts that you're thinking and see where they go. And I think a lot of people don't give themselves the space to. I certainly don't. I mean, I, I do, but not as much as I ought to. I'm really curious to hear how it goes. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep you posted. And um, if it ends up being completely opposite, <laughs> you know, don't judge. <laughs> well, I'm curious if it ends up resulting in a an analogy that has a visceral simplicity and yet some, well, as I described, uh, emotional obesity. That would be great if it like distilled into something like that. I'm, not that it would, but it might. Yeah, I um, I'm playing with a new piece. Uh, why I hate self love is the joke, right? Like it's um, toying with what is it about this idea that doesn't sit well for myself, and I think a lot of people I know, right, find it a little over the top or sort of super fluffy. So I've been playing with that, and 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 I've been kind of diving. You know, my my background's in philosophy and uh, some spirituality. I'm a yoga teacher. I've been practicing and studying yoga for 20 years, but I've really been diving into more spiritual modalities. And, and that's been really interesting as well. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. And now I'm going to switch from leader. I've been thinking about all of this in my mind is, is falls within leadership. And I want to switch to the environment, the other big word in the title of the podcast. And although we, it's, it's been running throughout, at least somewhat, is the environment something, is it a big thing for you? It's something you care about or is it not? That's some, is it something unrelated? Um, I mean, it's certainly something I care about. I wouldn't say that I'm somebody who puts this at the top of my concern list of life on a day-to-day basis like you do. And I so much appreciate your time and effort towards it because we certainly need people to rise up to this challenge in today's world. But it's definitely on my mind. It's something I'm very, very uh, aware of and conscious of and concerned about. So when you think about it, when you're aware of it and conscious about it, what does it mean to you? What is What does it, uh, independent of the magnitude of it, what does it what do you think about? What does it mean to you? What is the the question of climate change? What What do you mean specifically? Well, the environment in general, which could be climate change. I mean, it's one issue. It's and it's it's there's certainly there are problems, but there's also other things. I mean, if I say, I was going to say, if I say, if I ask you, what do you think about the environment? What do you think about? Which is kind of actually just asking, 
what do you think about the environment? I mean, some it's different for everyone. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is is global warming and the weather change that's been going on in the last couple of years. It's just um, quite frankly horrifying. So, you know, that's on my mind. You know, safety of the people in these in in these spaces and our lack of preparedness as a country for I think this continued weather change and the finances that are not being placed, I think, properly towards helping these communities that are already experiencing such, you know, dramatic shifts. It comes to mind for me, I have a son, right? And how much more extreme this is going to get over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And what that really means is is an overwhelming concept. I think about those things. And then I think on a mm, more day-to-day basis, because of the work I do, much less dramatic and overwhelming is what I just said is uh, the environment to me, right? The way we've shifted from living in spaces where we have open fresh air, grass, trees, the lack of time that we spend in nature, the lack of nature that's you know available to a lot of us, I think it has an impact on our well-being. I don't think we're that aware of it, but to live in concrete and have buildings and <laughs> the air we're breathing, you know, when I think about emotional obesity and when I think about connecting back to ourselves, there's been studies around this as well, but our lack of connection to nature is uh, not natural to us as a species. And so, you know, that's, that's the other thing that, that uh, comes to mind a lot for me. So it sounds like there's a lot there. One of the early words that you said, of, a powerful word of horror and concern about the future for your son it sounds like there's a lot of concern and although there was, I mean, the loss implied, you talked about the trees and outdoors, that there's also something, there's also, there's what's worth saving and what, like, it wouldn't be a horror to lose something not worth saving. So it feels like there's also some undercurrent of, of like, there's a beauty out there, something that is also there. And, you know, I can't help but think of this all in the lens of what you're talking about before, of how our junk food, the thoughts that we have create the perception of how things are. They lead to our moods. And, you know, what I'd like to ask or to invite you at your option, if you're at your option, if you're game for it, is to do something based on what you're saying about what the environment means to you. And it's not to save the world. I'm not saying like you have to fix all the world's problems by yourself overnight or even even care about the magnitude of it, but just something measurable that's not telling other people what to do, but just something that you weren't already doing to act on this, what your what the environment means to you. Yeah. Um, in sort of a daily habit sense of it. Yeah. Well, it could be, I mean, something measurable. And I usually say to make a smart goal, so make it you know, time bound. So it doesn't have to be for the rest of your life. So it could be to create a habit, but not necessarily. I'm not trying to get you to do something for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. but something to do to act on what these, I mean, it sounds like powerful emotions coming to the fore and I want to act on them. Yeah. I do have something that I feel I've been working on, but I think would be really fun to kind of take to the next level. I noticed that there was a certain amount of waste of food in our, my home, you know, not planning properly for the week and thinking about what we're really going to consume and what we really need. And 
Um, so I've, I've tightened that quite a bit, but I think that, you know, that's something that I want to do more of really start the week, think about, you know, which nights we're going to be home and what we're going to eat my son and I, and just, you know, not, not waste as much as our, you know, we can possibly, it's, it's like you have one child and they sell you an entire loaf of bread. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, right. It's like, there's no way he's going to eat that. And it's uh, a frustrating part of shopping because, you know, there's not, I think things set up to, to help encourage you to not waste food, but um, I don't know if that counts as something uh, significant in your it's not a matter of significance. It's just, it's a matter of doing. So is it that you would buy less or reuse more or a mix of the above? Or maybe it's some people like they reduce the amount of total trash that they produce. I'm not sure. Can you make it more specific? Yeah. It's just starting the week with a more proactive effort towards exactly what we need and shopping around that so that there's no waste to the best of our abilities. And yeah, just trying to quantify that and play with it until I get to a place that, right, we're, because sometimes I, I do it to the point that there's not enough food in the house. And, you know, my son's 13, like, we <laughs> need to like, be able to like get food quickly to him, unlike adults who can wait um, for hours. So just finding that nice balance where we, we significantly reduce any wasted food uh, week over week. How long do you think it would take to get to there? And would you be up for talking at the end of that period about how it went? Sure. And not long. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's just really bringing the consciousness to, to it on a week over week basis. So, I mean, I think probably a week to, to try it a week to make some adjustments. So two or three weeks would probably be more than enough to, you know, play with getting this to the right spot. Okay. So after we hang up, then I propose scheduling that. And then I'd love to hear, I can't help but think of my sister who lives in Queens not far from you, whenever I visit, she's got three kids and there's always extra food in the fridge. And I'm happy to eat all of it because she's a great cook. I love her cooking. And she's always like, have more, have more. I'm like, I feel bad because like I'm getting so much. She's like, please, more, take all you want. And I guess that happens that people, what you're talking about is not a rare thing. And unfortunately, I don't live near you to come over and eat your food. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I made soup for him. He has braces and he, his teeth hurt. So I made soup and I was making some chicken soup. And so I, I went into the freezer section or the refrigerator section at Whole Foods where they sell the chicken, but they only package two chicken breasts at a time. And it ends up creating a lot more soup than what he actually was going to eat. And I gave it to my friend and he took it home to eat it. But I, you know, I got to the end of the week and I was just this tremendous amount of soup still in my refrigerator and his teeth, by the way, felt better. So he doesn't really want soup day two, right? So it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a struggle to, to think all that through, you know, so I, I suppose I could have gone to the counter and asked the guy to give me one chicken breast, right? <laughs> Had, you know, reduce the, the soup in half. Yeah. It's funny. I, I had a previous guest who she talked about reducing waste and not getting packaging. And she asked me, what do you do about getting meat? Because it's always packaged. I said, I, I can't help you there because I don't eat it. So I don't really know. But then a later guest, B. Johnson, who's like a very prominent, multiple TED Talks on zero waste living. She said, the secret is this. When you go to the store, hand them your container that you want them to put the stuff in and don't make eye contact and act like that's totally normal. If you make eye contact, they'll be like, I don't know if I can do that. 
But if you just act like it's normal, you just say like, give me a quarter pound of that cheese and you can't see me now, but I'm like looking down while I'm handing it up, which is what I've seen her do. Yeah. Then yeah. I like, mean, all right, I guess I'll do it. <laughs> right. Right. There's so much built into our everyday living experience where there's tons of waste, right? So you have to go against the norm and face up to, I think, yeah, that uncomfortable feeling that people are going to say no or judge you or you're, you know, being a pain. And I think that's another barrier for people. Yeah. Part of what I'm doing here is I'm, I'm trying to reach, help society reach this tipping point, which I believe is there, that where it's more common that people do this than not. And then it's swimming downstream again. I'm trying to help get there by having influential people like you so that people who listen can say, oh, it's not just me. There's other people doing it. Even if I don't see them, they're still in my community. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. And I think the efforts you're putting in are really important for, you know, this, this, uh, this cause that is going to impact all of us. Well, that's the environmental side, on the, which I hope to make an effect there too. On the leadership side, I hope to bring joy and discovery and growth and meaning and purpose so that people like doing it, not just like they're complying or they're doing it because someone told them to, but for their own reasons and that they enjoy it. Yeah. And it's like everything we just talked about on the show, right? Changing habit, doing things differently, getting the meaning behind it, getting the motivation at first is uncomfortable and that's okay. It's okay if at the beginning, the five pound weight leaves you sore. It's okay if like managing the first few thoughts in your head is totally overwhelming. And it's okay if changing environmental, right? Your approach to the environment is a little awkward at first and maybe like unpleasant or frustrating, but that's short-lived and slowly it becomes a habit and slowly you don't care. Um, You know, I love right now because they've added the tax to bags, right? People are all bringing their bags in. <laughs> it's like, it's a, right. It's a kind of a pain to get used to it. And then everybody's doing it. So I think creating new habits, uh, it's a little frustrating for, for a little moment there, but, uh, once it becomes uh, part of your daily routine, it, it's enjoyable. And to your point, right. The more meaning you apply to it, the more enjoyable, uh, and motivated you are. One of the reasons I like having leaders and coaches like you on is that after now you just said all these things. So people will get to at home will get to hear, ah, you no, know, she advises and coaches and helps people. Now she's doing it herself. Let's hear how does does how, let's hear how it works for her also. So we'll see. And I have to mention that before we got on, it's Friday, Friday morning, I went to the the farmers market in Union Square and I picked up the like the last of I got some cabbage. And this can be like almost I think this will be like there's not a whole lot of green leafy vegetables around. So I got that. And they're sitting this bag. I was trying to remember as I was walking back from the farmer's market, I think I got this bag in the nineties and people are like getting canvas bags to, and I'm like, you have bags. I have like bags last for a long, long time. I haven't gotten a new bag in a long, long time. You know, it's beat up, but it still holds cabbage. Right. <laughs> so I haven't gotten a new bag in a long time. Yeah. And so I want to wrap up the, well, usually I wrap up by asking, is there anything I didn't think to ask that is worth bringing up? I could have asked. No, this was wonderful. I really loved our conversation. You mentioned emotionalobesity.com a handful of times. Most of my work has now moved over to lauraco.com. But um, other than that, it's uh, it's just, I you know, really joyed to, to chat with you. Okay. So all the people who paused it earlier and listened to a few episodes, now you can pause it again and listen to yet more episodes. And I'll have the links, of course. And uh, uh, anything you want to say directly to the listeners? I mean, you'll, we'll talk again in a couple of weeks also. Um, yeah, just anybody out there that, um, you know, any of this resonates with you, if, uh, you feel as if the thoughts in your mind are 
you know, potentially causing stress. If you feel there's a nagging sensation within you that you would like things to feel better, feel more purpose, feel as if, you know, a little, a little more ease and at peace, contentment in your life. Um, I'm happy to chat with you. Um, you can go on my website. There's a free 30 minute call and, and that I appreciate you having me on Josh. I appreciate you being on. And also if the people listening are at NPR, I don't know what you guys are waiting for, but that, that's also how to reach her. <laughs> Laura Co, thank you very much. Thank you. I can't get over how useful I find the concept of emotional obesity. I think in part because I spent so much time on making myself fit physically and mentally that I hadn't seen the analogy. Though I do follow the belief that our bodies physically manifest our beliefs and thoughts. But I really could have sold myself a lot of time. Actually, More importantly, I could have made the process of personal growth more fun since I find fitness fun, especially when it's part of a team sport. And I don't want to say that I've gone so far here. Some may say that I have a long way to go, but compared to a younger me, I've come pretty far. Also, the connection between emotional obesity and environmental obesity has long been clear to me, especially from a leadership standpoint, to the point where I'm surprised people haven't seen it. How we treat our bodies and the mental processes around those things and how we treat the environment, I find very similar. Now I can treat how we treat our minds and emotions to the mix. Inspire to then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.